So I, did you download the uh, 12 Days of Christmas app from Apple? Nope. Uh, I did. So far, the app, the stuff they've been giving away is kind of crap. But it's free, right? And so my, my big gripe is that the most recent free app was a kid's app. It's a, some Toka thing, which my daughter loves. She loves those Toka apps. And they're actually pretty well done, but they're very kid-focused apps. So anyways, Apple's giving these apps away free. And people are really disappointed and pissed off about the stuff they're giving away for free. They want like these big name application software things, whatever. And so they're going to the app that they gave away free and writing in their comments and, you know, downvoting their their um, stats. And then just writing a bunch of crap about how this is a dumb thing to give away free. Why don't you give us this? Why don't you give us that? It's just this spoiled brat Apple user users. Just going on 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 there, just making up these these things. It's it's really affecting. So, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not so sure I would want Apple to give my app away for free because if people don't like it, they're going to ruin my rating. Yeah, it's almost somewhat of a curse. I mean, Apple they've got such broad reach with the general consumer market now that I mean, you just it's almost like the YouTube comments situation, right? You just get the really all aspects of society, including the really crappy ones. I know the spoiled brats out there. That's what pisses me off the most is that it's a kid's app. If you don't like it, fine. Don't download it. It's free. Nothing says you have to like whatever they try to give you. I don't, I don't know what they expected that they get a new iPod or something. I don't know. Uh, probably so. I, and, and I wonder because of this, this, this issue, this particular issue, if Apple will do it again next year. I hope they don't. Well, it obviously didn't affect you since you didn't download it. Yep. And I think I only downloaded it just to see what they were giving away. I didn't have really high expectations. But anyways, that's what I wanted to vent about. I was kind of pissed about the spoiled brats out there. Yeah, well, we live in an, an entitlement society. Society. Everyone thinks they're entitled to everything from the time they're born and the whole rest of their life. Welcome to America. All right. Well, I've get, I've got some Salesforce stuff that I can get into, but it's going to take us uh, on a trip through recent memory lane, and it's going to wrap together like a couple of things we've talked about recently. Um, oh. But it's kind of it might take a, a little while, so I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to. No, get let's in at go the for it. Here. Okay, I'm curious. I'm excited. I ha- I don't know anything about this. All right. So the first part of this is is actually a clip that I pulled from a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about uh, the journalistic ethics and integrity. Um, yes, you I remember it, was, it well. Yeah. You, so you thought it, you think it's totally okay for Salesforce and presumably any other company to pay for journalists to, you know, cover their events, come, come to their events. Um, you think that's not a problem. And I think that's a huge problem. So at first I've got a, just a clip for that, that I want to play. Just kind of set the stage here. All right. Journalists have some integrity. Don't let vendors pay for everything. I don't have a problem anything. with vendors paying. I'm just saying, don't let that influence your, 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 your writing. There's no such thing as it not. That's completely against all journalists. That's what integrity is. Ethics. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Integrity is not letting them pay you for anything. No. Yes, it is. Come on, man. No, let, let them wine that's, and dine you. 
That's let them, let them do their song and dance. Let them get put their best foot forward. You don't but get you to take their money. The they facts can't buy and you. you write about the facts. That's what you're integrity compromise. is. You're compromised. It doesn't no, happen. You're only compromised <laughs> if you let it compromise. Sorry. We're human beings. Uh, it's it's personal you're choice. You're only compromised if you let it compromise. The only the only time it's it's horrible is that they're sitting there making you write with a gun to your head everything they tell you to write. I stand by those words. Okay, well, good for you. Plus, I, plus I love how frustrated you guys started banging on the desk. <laughs> yeah, and that was that was like a one minute out of this ten minute argument that we had about about that. Um, all right, so that's kind of sets the stage, right? So, um, and then so I was listening to. It was the so this week in tech the Twit podcast, uh-huh. and they started talking about this similar topic, and it was um, I think so it was Leo Laporte and John C. Dvorak and I think J- uh, Jason Snell maybe I don't know one of these Mac Mac World guys, um, and they were talking about this. So I clipped some of that, and I want to play. I'm going to play like little bits of it, and then we can talk about. Um, what they're saying. So let's see here. Okay, let me try this. All these journalistic considerations about ethics in particular, and you are favored by a company and given free goods and given free trips and given all these things, and you write favorable reviews, which you will do with Apple. Otherwise, you get on the blacklist. How is this even remotely ethical? Who has been given free trips by Apple? Okay. I, I would love some names on that. Well, okay. Apple okay. Well, say, I, I didn't get okay, that fine. invitation. I don't know about free trips. It's a possibility. I do, I do get offered but, free trips by tech companies to go companies. to Taiwan Samsung. or Seoul. And we have to turn them I have down. less problems with that if somebody admits it. But all the all the the, the the access to Steve Jobs, the access to the early prototypes, that is favoritism. You and know what I like you it, write sir. about it is a as a work it, as and you present it to the public as as objective. This is bull crap. So who's who in that clip? All right. So the guy that was saying that getting paid and then writing about it is bull crap. That's John C. Dvorak. All right. And who's the other guy? Um, that the guy he was arguing with the most, I think, was Jason Snell. All right, I like Jason Snell. Then <laughs> <laughs> we're on the same page on this. Uh, okay, we're so we're not off to a good start. Here. Okay, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Wait a minute, is your goal with this to change my mind? No, just to try to prove a point. I see. What, Continue, how, where sir. in the disclosure form do you say Apple likes us? I mean, you got to disclose this, right? Well, where do you where do you put that? Apple, you put it up front. You say, "Look, Apple gave me an early copy, right. and I'm going to write good I don't think things, or I'll never one. get another copy." Ah, of my that's life. the clause that doesn't get stated. Yeah, <laughs> is there a fear you know, Walt Mossberg is pretty clear about that. He always says we get Walt and Ed and David all say, and then they say good things. So, what do you think? I, I think disclosing it is a good idea. I think that should be at the top of it. And, and it is. So there've been, some of these guys have acknowledged in some, in some of their posts that, you know, Salesforce has um, paid for them to go places, do things, paid for expenses. Well, see, that, that doesn't have to, the, the idea that because they paid for it means you have to write a favorable review. And the assumption here that's being made in all of these arguments is that you're going to, you're going to write a favorable review because you want Salesforce or Apple in this case, to keep sending you places, to keep inviting you places, to keep sending you free stuff. But I, I think that that's a negative view of, of journalism. Negative or is that possibly realistic? I mean, if, if 
someone, it's an imperfect someone world gives you with a, imperfect someone, people, if, and it's it's probably possible there's plenty of them out there, maybe even a larger percentage than not, of people that write good reviews just so they can get free stuff. Okay, well, you just totally caved. No, I didn't cave. Yes, I'm saying did. journalistic integrity means despite all of that, you stick to the facts and you write the truth. You don't worry about them sending you free stuff. You don't worry about them paying to invite you somewhere. You still write about the facts. If it's a good event, if it's good software, write that. If you, but if you, what the point is, is if you don't give them the type of coverage they want, you will lose access and therefore lose the ability to do the job that you're doing. Anyway, let me continue I, with this. Walt's been pretty rarely uh, does Walt, yeah, and he, he only he, does it. He does sometimes. You get the feeling he's, he's getting permission to do it. Well, he doesn't do this anymore, yeah. but you get the you get the distinct impression that Pogue is just really goes out of his way to say good things and in exchange for getting future access. This and is like the this is the same thing happens in Washington with the, well, with the press I, corps. I, I like it to beltway is, journalism, exactly. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. If you say anything bad about the president, you will not get back into that room. And that's normal. So that's the point, right? I, it's an excellent point. I mean, if there's a good chance that that if you're not favorable enough and they're they're trying to invite people to cover an event favorably, they're probably you're not probably you're probably not going to be their guy. But at least you can go to bed at night sleeping, well knowing that you that you have integrity, that you did your job and you did it well, and that your readers are going to be able to trust you because you're not caving to this. But if but if you if if you regularly are producing positive reviews or Let's say even if you are trying to be fair, of course, we're dealing with human psychology here. So if someone's giving you money and giving you access to things and saying, hey, write a fair report, it's just psychologically, it's so hard to write a fair report. I don't think so. Of course it is. I don't think so. I do not believe that if that if if you go somewhere and someone's kind of giving you the wink, wink, nudge, nudge that you don't get a you don't get that creepy feeling inside that sinking feeling inside that says crap that wink wink nudge nudge means that if i don't do something that they want i'm not coming back and to that i say screw you i'm gonna write what i want to write and you're just gonna have to deal with it yep it's normal but it's I pathetic feel, that, that's like the it's, key that's the key point is at the moment where there's where, okay, where though, you get it? access and there is something that you have to write about and you have to choose between being honest or not being honest in order to Butter up your source. That's the moment where you have to decide if you're in journalism or PR. Now, right. that was to go back to your trips. So some of my trips. Yes. See, I argue about this. And on the, now I take the other side. If you get a free trip to Taiwan from someone or San Francisco and you tell everyone you got this free trip to go to this event and you report on the event ob- objectively, knowing you may never go again, which is the way you would do it. That's good. That's good. You stuck it to the man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except those, those journalists. All right, we're, that's we're the end of free my trip. I, and screw you. Weren't there, like weren't there bloggers who went to a exactly. trade show in Germany on Samsung's right. dime, and they and, and they started writing things they the, didn't like? And yeah. Samsung was like, "You find your own way home." Yeah. But then they came out of the hotel. They said, "We're not your tickets are out of the hotel." Always have your tickets with you. Anyway, you know what? The first part of that conversation was you got to decide if you're going to be a journalist or in PR, and that's that's a perfect way of putting it. You can either choose that you're going to be an extension of Salesforce's PR or Apple's PR because of the favors that you get, or you're going to choose to be a journalist. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. It's just not near that simple. Um, 
you know, again, if people are paying you, giving you money, giving you access to things, um, and in return, they expect a certain kind of coverage. I mean, there's just a lot of people that are going to take that deal. And I mean, from, from the highest levels of, you know, what we would call journalism, I guess this happens. You could write an article, you could be fair, you can be complimentary of, of, a, of a company's strengths and still criticize them. You could still point out areas where they need improvement. I mean, and I don't is, see that as being a bad thing. So this is, but this is something that when you get into what I would call real journalism is, is totally not allowed um, in the political areas, you know, just general news and stuff. But see, that's, that to me is not real journalism. That's this, this extension PR crap that, that has become synonymous with, with media that has picked a side. They have Wait. become nothing more than, than PR. They trumpet the same lines that, that, that whatever political party they've affiliated with is trumpeting. They go along with it. They go along with the same storylines. They're saying the same thing. Yeah, but what I'm saying is in, in politics, they, that's, that type of thing would not be allowed at all. I mean, if you, if you fly on, if a journalist flies on Air Force One, they, have, they actually have to pay the equivalent, equivalent of like a, what it would have cost a ticket. And that's just so there is no you know, appearance of impropriety. But I'm saying those type that level of ethics does clearly does not exist in the, I guess in the IT world or at least in the Salesforce area. From what we've already seen from some of these other guys who have admitted that they are are getting paid to go to Dreamforce, getting paid to go to on these road shows. Oops, um, literally brought on board the mothership at Salesforce on the payroll, um, getting paid to do roundtables at Dreamforce. You know, they bring in the Gilmore gang now every year, I guess. And Steve Gilmore brings in every once. And these people are, I guess, are just all paid to talk about Salesforce and listen to them. I mean, they go listen to the it's on YouTube. The Gilmore gang talk about Dreamforce and just how I mean, it's just it's gushing. It's it's so obviously, you know, biased coverage. Um, well, I, I've got I've got a couple of things to say about that. One, the, the way you describe that pretty much says that they're their PR as a service. <laughs> Salesforce says, Hey, we want some, some, some really positive coverage. You guys want to come in and do that? And they're like, sure. And and the other thing is that, well, and, and the thing is, no, here's the thing. I mean, Steve Gilmore wants to get invited back next year. I mean, since they've been doing this, they all sit up there and give Salesforce, you know, the, the pat on the back and talk about how great Salesforce is. And it's, it's not good coverage. It's certainly not analytical. It's, it's very fluff. It's very just, it's just fluff journalism. If I don't, I wouldn't even call it journalism. I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, but, but they want, but they keep getting asked back and it's because of that. And, and they like that. And so they've become, they've become a PR company. They're not journalists, they're PR, but I found my train of thought. And my, okay. my second point was going to be that you have not been to a dream force. And I, I think you and I should go next year. I, I don't know why I would go. If, I've already told you why I wouldn't want to go. It's it's way too big. That's too many people on the. It, it is on, too big, but on a little but, part of a little peninsula. I'm not going. You and I should go. Non-sponsored. We'll find a way to make the money work. <laughs> we'll share a hotel or whatever. We'll find a way to make it work so that we don't have any obligation to write about it or or you know do anything other than just attend it and observe. Because I think what you'll find is that when you're there, the excitement, the, the PR, everything that's going on there, you kind of get sucked in. Although you might 
might be able to deflect that or, or just not, not be affected by that. Cause you're, you're so cynical sometimes, well, but no, I can tell you, I mean, so the best coverage I saw of, of Dreamforce was of journalists that were not even there. Um, most yeah, of the journalists because, that, that were yeah. there gave this really fluff coverage. It was not even, it was not realistic. Um, it did not give me an accurate picture of, um, it, it did not cut through the, the marketing and cut through the spin, which is what you want a good analyst and journalist to do. I mean, yeah, I had to go elsewhere. There were people who were not there who were giving much better coverage. So, and, and that is true. But I think when we, when we say journalists, we, we tend to cover the spectrum of those that are trying to do true investigative journalism, stick to the facts, report the facts, tell, inform you with those that are doing opinion columns, those that are doing just blogging or whatever, however you want to call it, that, that really aren't trying to do anything but share their thoughts or amuse on their thoughts. And, and for, for some reason or another, that has become synonymous with journalism. Yeah. Okay. But so I really do think that once you go to a gym forest, you might actually see what, how it affects people and how it affects the message because you kind of get wrapped up in it and you kind of get taken away by it. There, there's definitely a hangover afterwards. You definitely have to level set yourself in reality, but at least for the first day or the first, after the first keynote, you're kind of sucked in by it. I think it depends on your personality type. If you're susceptible to, you know, like a religious experience type of thing. No, you just got to be open to listening and not sit there and roll your eyes and go, and this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Nope. I'm not going to like it. Nope. That's not what I do. Nope. I'm not going to like it. It sucks. Nope. You're not going to convince me. (laughs) That spoiled kid that's sitting there with his arms crossed. That's what I picture. That's what I picture you doing at a keynote, just sitting there with your arms crossed with that mad face. Not gonna like it. Look at him. I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> All right. So I'm gonna take another turn on you here. Um, this was, oh, so this was, this is kind of old again, but um, this was so uh, a blog post that Marco Arment wrote about <clears throat> the hackathon. And he says, uh, turns out, uh, suspe- uh, so he's, talk- he's actually talking about another blog post that, uh, a woman named Alicia Liu wrote, he says, turns out her her suspicions, which were published uh, on medium were correct, but Salesforce's execution was much here and sleazier than most people would have predicted. Uh, see the hacker news comments. Okay. Well, Salesforce got a bunch of free ideas out of this. They also burned their developer community badly, which is going to hurt their recruiting and maybe retention too. I can't imagine this will prove worthwhile in the long run. Um, and so then I went and read that, post he was referring to and it was actually it was pretty darn long so it was this woman alicia Liu, her and uh or she and i guess her some partner of hers they decided to participate in the hackathon um they weren't going to initially but um this guy matt thompson who works for heroku um he wrote a blog post talking about how you know people should should really participate and all this stuff so they decided to do it um, but anyway, her post is definitely worth reading, but I've just got a couple of things I highlighted here. So she says to me, it was just another marketing gimmick, like so many corporate sponsored hackathons before it to trick otherwise sane developers into working for free with copious amounts of junk, copious amounts of junk food and caffeine and the lure of dubious prizes to develop apps on top of, on top of APIs and platforms they wouldn't otherwise bother with. Um, corporate sponsored hackathons are an all in win for the sponsoring company. They get a big influx of fresh ideas and developers working themselves to illness. 
uh, just to meet a crazy deadline. In return, the company puts up a couple of prizes, which is far less than what it would cost to get them the same result in-house, paying developers fair wages, assuming they even have developers of the caliber that the hackathon might attract. Um, on top of it all, it's also a recruiting event for the company. Um, anyway, she goes on to talk about really a lot of the logistics that they experienced and how they were one of the people that their app, they uh, had some kind of analytics or tracking on or something. It just, it didn't even get touched or looked at. Yeah. I, I read that article and I, I actually agree with a lot of what she was saying. I, I don't think, I don't like hackathons. I don't like these competitive, you know, write some code and build an app in an hour or in a day or in a week. So you're, so you're saying if you're into hackathon, you would just sit there with your arms folded saying, I'm not going to do it. I don't like it. <laughs> no, I'd sit there and observe others that were working their butts off and going, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, and so just to be clear, I mean, she's not talking about hack. She, she actually likes hackathons a lot. She just doesn't. Um, and, and she goes, she it really doesn't sound doesn't, like she does. I mean, she, no, oh, no, no, she doesn't. That's why I said you should. Anyone who's interested should read that whole article, but the her blog post, because she talks about the difference between corporate sponsored hackathons and the ones that are either completely community-driven hackathons or at least ones where there's no pretense of big prizes in like corporate sponsorship. Sometimes a company will sponsor it, but it's it's not for the benefit of the company. It's not necessarily around a certain company's APIs or anything like that. But um, anyway, I got a couple other things I wanted to hear from her. So you also understand that we will not restrict work assignments of representatives who have had access to your entry. By entering this hackathon, you agree that use of information in our representatives' unaided memories and the development or deployment of our products or services does not create liability for us. And there you have it, folks. Companies like Salesforce have hijacked hackathons to get free projects, apps, and ideas out of developers in exchange for some cold pizza <laughs> without any of the spirit of what hackathons were originally supposed to be about. Um, in Salesforce's defense on this one, I think, I think their lawyers probably absolutely require them to put that clause in there. Yeah. I was going to uh, say that, what happens that, if, if not, then someone will sue them for saying Salesforce stole their idea. Right. But yeah, but it still is what it is. I mean, it, I mean, I think, I think that's the, that's the downside of having such a big prize is that unfortunately all this stuff really starts to matter. The rules really start to matter because people care because they know that there's this big prize and it becomes kind of a big contract. Um, anyway, at the very end, all in all, a fitting conclusion to the mounting absurdity that is this hackathon. The corporate bullshit, oops, I meant PR, machine kicked into gear. There was so much bullshit that the only way out was to cover it with even more bullshit and then throw wads of money around to distract everyone. So she's talking about how they just they ended up doubling the prize and giving multiple millions of dollars to different people. Um, that worked. Salesforce got more coverage while their hangers-on applauded the resolution and, in a final twist of irony, praised Salesforce for being so transparent. I mean, what do you think? They they totally botched it, and then they buy more people off. And then, of course, all the all the what I call the sycophant cheerleaders. Uh, they, 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 you know, they pray Salesforce is, they, they couldn't have done better. You know, you, what, what an awesome example. Awesome. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> Unbelievable. I Phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was, I don't think it was a necessarily a great example in terms of the hackathon and the results of it. I no, it was a terrible example. They no, did I know everything that. that's, wrong. That's what I'm saying. They did get everything wrong on that, but I don't think their resolution I don't know what they could have done to try and resolve it other than try and reward 
the next person in line with the same amount to try and say, okay, this might not have been fair. Let's, let's, let's reward the next person in line with the same amount. I saw just as an, as an example of what she's talking about, um, of, you know, in the final twist of irony, people are now praising Salesforce for being so transparent and awesome about this. Um, that combined with all this journalistic integrity, I'm going to go back to, and I mentioned this on one of our previous episodes. There's a guy named Ben Keeps who writes for Forbes, and this is what he said about how Salesforce decided to give a second million dollar prize away. It's a good resolution. Pulling the prize from the initial winners would have been hugely problematic, but Salesforce has found a way to reward the moral winner of the event, if not the actual one. It's a good example of a vendor nimbly responding to a potential public relations relations fiasco and turning it around. This is a guy who was paid to go to Dreamforce and to write about it. I, I do think that that article and that response and the way he worded it is BS. And I, yeah, I agree with you on that one. I, I don't think Salesforce should be applauded for the way they resolved it, but I think they resolved it in a good way. I don't, I, don't, I can't think of any other way that would not have caused some backlash. It would, would not have been worse. I think he's right that if you took the prize away from the first place winner, it would have been problematic. Next best thing to do if you have the money is to reward the next next one in line. But I certainly don't think it's a great example to mimic and everything. I think that the better example is to not get yourself in this position in the first place. Well, I, th- I think that's the that's the point is there was nothing they could have done at that point. I mean, they, they couldn't make really make that right. The, it was weird, though, that that when they decided to give a million dollars to a, the, the runners up, that that was a company that Salesforce has an investment in. I mean, that. That was just like the icing on the cake. <laughs> just like, really? Yeah, that was, that was kind of unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, this just, this needs to go away. Um, this needs to go I, away. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I think it should be a lesson learned. They probably should do away with these high dollar hackathon prizes. I mean, I, I think it's fun for developers to be able to go to an event and to put together some code and maybe compete and have some prizes for those people that are into that. But maybe not make it so high dollar that that politics and and things like that get in the way of of people having fun at your event. Anyway, if you want a good laugh, go listen to the Gilmore Gang's coverage of uh, of Dreamforce. It's either on YouTube or I think TechCrunch had it too. It's it's pretty great. I should have pulled some clips from that. Maybe I will sometime. Anyway, I, did you see that? So that that's the end of that. Um, did you see that uh, some? I, I don't know if this is something that pe- multiple people are talking about, or if this is just one one article. But um, there's, you know, there was this question. You know, can Salesforce grow into a ten billion dollar company? I haven't seen that. No. So what are they? They're like four billion now, right? Um, or like, so Salesforce expects to be at five point two billion in revenue by by the end of two thousand fifteen. So they're they're I guess almost at four right now. But they're talking about how I think within five years they can be at ten billion. Um, I thought it was interesting. So, do you think they can get there as a CRM company, or do you think they're planning on getting there as a as a platform company? No, I mean, so this this analyst was saying that it's basically it's a combination of you know Salesforce automation, so the original Salesforce um, customer service marketing, which would include you know Radiant Six, Exact Target, and I guess Buddy Media. And then in the cloud platform, which they're including like Heroku and I guess force.com and database.com, although no one uses those except people that are already building, they're already working on Salesforce projects. 
Yeah, and I think if if the if the analysis is skewed towards their ability to deliver a good CRM product, incorporate marketing tools and all those kind of things, I think it's possible. But if 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 they're kind of leaning it towards the platform, the development environments, those kind of things that that maybe Benioff would want you to believe, I, I don't think it's going to get there with those. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I, I don't. I certainly don't want to underestimate, um, you know, Mark Benioff and and that team. Um, no, I think the team could definitely put some good marketing around it, and they can make a good run at it. But I don't think that Heroku as a platform will make them an additional five billion. No, no, not not just Heroku. Uh, Heroku. I mean, it's funny they're actually a fairly small player. I don't even know if they call them out on the. Um, I'd have to look on the on the financial reports. I'm not even sure they get listed, but it's it's a small piece of Salesforce, and I don't think it's profitable either. Not that I, that matters because apparently profitability doesn't matter, and no one's even talking about that anymore. It's just can Salesforce get to 10 billion now? Doesn't you know? Don't worry about the fact that they're at five right now and still not making money. You, you just make it up in volume, right? If you're losing money, <laughs> just sell more. <laughs> Well, I think the idea is that they're focused on growth. They're focused on R and D. They're focused on the future. But I don't know. I mean, that's that's something that a private company focuses on. Public companies are supposed to make money, right, for their shareholders. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just it's it's a little bit of a different world now. You know, look at Amazon; they just lo- you know lost money for so long. And well, di- not even that. Let's let's look at Facebook. Let's look at Twitter. The recent IPO on Twitter. These are yeah. companies that are commanding large amounts of dollars, huge stock prices, but have they actually been profitable? Have they actually found a model that generates profit? I think so. I think Facebook has been the, I think Facebook actually may be profitable. If not, they're, they're the closest. Um, Twitter, I don't think so. And I noticed Twitter, like their, their valuation now is like 40 billion. This is again, a company that has, I think never been profitable. Salesforce has been profitable, you know, marginally um, here and there. Same I mean, with Amazon. I think if Salesforce focused on, pro- I think if that was their focus, they could be profitable. But they're just between, you know, in just continuing to invest more and in acquisitions. Man, that's that's what's killing the profitability. It's well, we again, talked about it's this arm race, arms race we talked about between Salesforce, Oracle, Microsoft, uh, probably IBM, and Adobe. And yeah, so, so here's just, my theory because we talked a little bit about this before. And we talked about how companies like Microsoft and Oracle are profitable and they're on these older kind of business models, but they're not focused on the future like Amazon, like Google, like, like Salesforce. And I wonder if that's, that's the reason. It it sounds like you're saying though, that losing money is synonymous with focusing on the future. And if you're making money now, then surely you can't be focused on the future. That's kind of what I think I'm saying is that if you're, if you're focused on the profits right now, your your profits today, your profits quarter over quarter, you're not thinking about the future. You're you're kind of thinking about, you know, what your stock prices is constantly. And you know, Microsoft is struggling with their long term vision. Yahoo's struggling with their long term version. And Oracle, Oracle's in a good spot, I think, because they own so much of the tools out there that we use, and. They're kind of okay because by default, just like Microsoft is kind of okay by default. Well, they're writing their, their legacy cash cow. Yeah, exactly. And some that's, you know, that's one thing I've said about Microsoft at some point, they've got to sacrifice that cash cow. The, the, 
you know, the windows cash cow, um, which is really more of a, um, an albatross. I mean, it's, you know, every Microsoft has had this problem of every department has, they have to somehow tie their value back to, are they driving sales of windows licenses? Mm-hmm. And I know that I know they're trying in certain areas, but they've, they've got to get rid of that mentality if they're going to be around and, and relevant in 10 years. I think there's signs that they might be. Um, I actually, and I don't have much information on this to talk intelligently about it, but I did read that they are working on a new OS platform and they are working on a new language that sits on that platform. It's, it's, um, it's called M sharp. I don't know if you've heard of that. Nope. I haven't heard of it either. And there's actually not much information that I could find on it, but it is interesting that they are working on that language and there's rumors that it could even, even be an open source language. Um, it's an extension or at least built similar to the way C sharp was built. Um, but I think it's interesting that it's in code named M M sharp, which kind of leads me to think it might be a mobile specific OS or at least an OS that's far more lean than windows eight is and could potentially serve their tablets much better, Hmm. but they need to do something. I mean, the surface is kind of cool. There's just, there've just been too many little issues here and here and there or big issues really. They're still focused on being a windows machine in a little tablet. And I think that's, that's more of a detriment than anything. I think, I don't think people are at least the average user, you know, grandma, mom, father-in-law, brother-in-laws, whatever are looking to be that productive on their tablets. They all have computers. They all still have laptops or whichever. They're not really looking to be productive on a notebook. And those who are tech savvy, or I'm sorry, on a tablet, those who are tech savvy require a lot more than, than just being able to enable Excel on a little tablet. It needs a completely different interface. It needs to work better, be more efficient. And I think that's probably where they've gone wrong in a lot of this. It's interesting because what you just said is seems to be 180 degrees off of what I'm hearing, which is um, particularly older people are going tablet only and they need, they need their tablets to be very productive. They're, they are foregoing having any kind of traditional PC. No, because older people are doing a lot of things on the web. They're browsing on the web. They're entering forms on the web. They're checking news stories. They're reading stuff. They're doing their financials. They're not writing code. They're not running games or really large scale games or applications that require tons of 3d graphics and all those kind of things. Their, their needs are fairly simple. Yeah. I just, I I just, I guess I wanted to make sure that we're including like office type applications in that they do need those. They do, but I don't think the desktop user experience is good for tablets. Oh, I agree with that. And I think Microsoft thought that they could just take that experience and stick it on a tablet and it'll be okay. Well, that was the shortest putt probably. It probably was, but I think that was to their detriment. They, I think they should have taken more time and built something that was truly designed for tablets and made it far more valuable. And, even if it meant sacrificing some functionality. And between the requirement to kneel at the altar of windows licenses and stack ranking, uh, this is what we ended up with <laughs> <laughs> windows eight tablet or is it RT? Cause you got RT and pro, right? Uh, it's so confusing and it, it's horrible. And, and what I find is that people find the windows eight, I guess almost full version, not the RT version far more useful than they do are the RT. 
And I'm, and I know that kind of contradicts what I said, that people's needs are simple, but they kind of, the way, the way, um, they kind of sold it and marketed it. People had kind of expected to see all the stuff they saw on their desktop on it. I still think that was the wrong way to market it. And I think that's the wrong expectations for a tablet, but that's the expectations they set. And for the people who were into Microsoft and, and that operating system, that's what they were expecting to get. And when they got RT and it didn't have that stuff, they were really disappointed. Don't you feel like though they were close enough that they've learned some important lessons and that when they come out with round two of this, it's, it's going to be a lot closer. Don't you get that feeling? I can only hope. I, I don't know if I have that feeling just yet, but I, I can hope that they, that they're getting there. But Microsoft, mm. I think Microsoft is a re- really stubborn. If, if I look at Balmer, I see a very stubborn CEO who's going to cling to those models. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons we all want to see a new CEO come in, someone with fresh ideas, not someone from inside the company, but outside the company who can kind of get rid of that old mentality and come up with some new ideas, or at least be able to take some bigger risks. Yep. Yeah, it should be interesting. I mean, I, like I've said before, I'm not really a daily user of Microsoft products, but you know, that could change a little bit. And I definitely want, I definitely want them to get their act together because I think we need them to participate. They need to be a healthy participant, you know, in this marketplace and provide some good competition. Keep For me, I'm, st- I'm still a, a very big Microsoft developer. I, I use Visual Studio. I develop a lot of solutions on that. And I can't, I can't or don't want to develop for Windows 8 because my market is so limited. If I develop for Windows 8 to go on their app store, which is what I really would like to do, I have, that's the only market I can target because Windows 7 doesn't have the app store. Yeah. And you have to compile completely different code. And considering that in the, in the windows world, the upgrade rates are so low. I mean, you, if you depended on windows, people running windows eight for your customer base, that's a problem. Right. I mean, it's penetration. The market has been minimal. I mean, it's probably single digit. Well, that's one reason why it's arguably better to be like a Mac or iOS, iOS developer, especially with windows or with Apple giving away the new versions of Mac OS 10 now. Right. Right. I mean, that, that helps the upgrade rate, <laughs> make it free. It, interestingly enough though, if, if Google hadn't gotten into the mobile market, that would be Mark, Microsoft's market to own. And they would, they would be in the same position, a very fragmented OS with, with slow adoption to newer OSs. That's, that's Adobe's problem. I'm sorry. Um, uh, Android Android's problem yeah. right now. Yep. Yeah, it's just not not as it's it's it still is a problem. Um, not device fragmentation so much, but you know OS fragmentation in the right. iOS world. Um, it's just not as bad, and it's it's pretty reasonable. Developers can see on a fairly short timeline when they can start making things. You know, iOS six only or iOS seven only. Um, right, man. In the Windows world, you basically you can't ever do that. I mean, most new Windows apps that come out today still run on XP. Right. I mean, if you're, if you're compiling against, you know, the latest, um, the latest binaries, then you're going to be excluding, you know, way too much of a potential customer base. It just business wise, it's untenable. So, yeah. And some of these larger enterprise companies that are still on XP, they're not moving to windows eight. 
you know, obviously XP is not supported anymore, I believe, as of this year. Or is about to be. Um, in either case, companies are having to upgrade, but they're not upgrading to Windows 8. They're upgrading to Windows 7. Yeah, it just seems like Windows 8's... Um, yeah, you're right. That's interesting. Windows 7 is the current upgrade target for yeah. most companies. It is. Yeah, I didn't and no one much- talks about Vista. Vista never happened. <laughs> yeah, that's why I watched that. That, that never happened. I, I don't, Vista, like that, what is that? Kind of like that uh, $1 million <laughs> hackathon. What, what hackathon? It never happened. Take this money and go away. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, man, not much else in the news. I was searching through. It's, you know, it's like the end of the year, so nothing is happening. Well, I, I read something interesting the other day I thought we'd talk about. And it was, um, it was a GigaOM article by Jeff John Roberts. You got to love that. Jeff, I love people with the middle name in there. Jeff John Roberts. Okay. It's and, that, uh, that either means they're a serial killer or, you know, they're a, they have political aspirations. <laughs> Their parents have political aspirations for them. Gotcha. Or, or are you saying that, that it's politically oriented because they choose to, to publish their name in that way? I think that's what it is. Yeah. So anyways, this article was actually about Salesforce and it was about, well, no, it wasn't about Salesforce, but I translated it into something that could affect Salesforce. Um, and it was about, about the NSA and all the security issues. And the article's titled new industry contracts say no data in the U S. And the reason for that is, is because of all the NSA spying, the, the NSA access to that information. And it's not even just the data being located here. It's also the lo- the data being transmitted across the lines that they're saying that NSA is actually tapping those lines of communication. So they didn't even want it even here, even if it was isolated in its own little data center, you know, they want it back on their shore. And I think that definitely has an impact on Salesforce and and where they store their data. It's interesting when you sign up for Salesforce, I wonder, can you, um, can you request to be on like, what is it? EU, don't they have EU one and EU two? Yep. Can you request to be on one of those? I believe you can. I believe I've worked with companies that had very strict requirements on where their data was actually located based on where they were headquartered. And so they, they had to, they were on domains that were clustered in those countries. Yeah. Now where, where it gets kind of tricky. And I think there's just some, exception in the contract that says, yes, we know some data is actually going to be in the U S is if you're a global company and you have data being transmitted here and there, I'm not sure how that all works. Um, well, I think you, I think you have to pick which, which pod you're in because there's no, there's no really like data sharing across those pods. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what I'm saying. I think there's some exception to the rule where you can kind of contractually negotiate that your data is going to be here, but somehow it's still secure because there's, there's global companies that are headquartered here in the U S yet they still have to live up to the regulations of whatever foreign company they're doing business in. And so I think that kind of gets a little complicated in terms of data storage and all those kind of things. But I, I don't think I've ever heard of Salesforce splitting a database and storing half here and half there. I think if anything, it would be just a separate instance that they somehow share data. You know, it's strange. I, I work with a couple of companies who, have who have very, very sensitive data and any service they use has to be, you know, SAS certified and whatever the new, there's newer versions of that. I always forget what they're called. Um, and they have to have 
you know, they have to document and have white papers on like all of their, you know, security strategies and the data at rest has to be encrypted, which I don't even think Salesforce does, or at least they never publicly claim to do. But this, this NSA stuff doesn't bother them at all. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the reason is because if I bet if you looked at the way their contracts are worded with their partners and customers, I bet you there's something in there about like either acts of God or, or government process. They're not liable for, you know, in any kind of uh, loss. That's a, that's a common, those are common you know phrases for clauses for uh, contracts. And so that, so they probably, that's probably why that's not a big deal for them. They don't really care because they are covered because their contracts say that, you know, if there's some act of God or, you know, a government process that, uh, that they're off the hook. I don't think it's a really a liability issue. I think it's really just a, an issue well, with the fact that, that the NSA has access to this information. Well, so, so say that you're a company that your customers, you know, entrust you with their data and you do things with their data that involves other software as a service, you mm-hmm. know, other systems. Right. So you, you kind of do have, you know, at that point, you basically you're liable for doing probably all kinds of just common law, like, uh, you know, standard, like warranties and things like that. Um, but then also specific contractual, you know, provisions to, to do specific things with data and, and probably set guidelines for, um, you know, any system that's going to be used, what, what are the requirements for it? Yeah. And that, that's actually one of the things that's mentioned in this article. In fact, I'll read it. It says, a handful of companies are requiring cloud service providers to promise in writing that they won't store any client data in the United States. And that was their quote from a, from an article in Bloomberg. Yeah. And I guess that helps a little bit, but you know, if you're accessing that data from the, in the United States, I mean, the NSA could probably be involved in that. You'd, re, you'd literally have to connect to a proxy server that was outside of the United States that hopefully was not infiltrated by the NSA. And then through that proxy server, then access whatever service you're trying to access which also has to not be in the United States. And I think for most of these companies that have this type of requirement, they, they have very secure private networks that, that are kind of encapsulated that way. Yeah. Uh, but it, the, the story also goes on to say, and there's some pretty big numbers being thrown around. It says um, a Forrester analyst reported that it could cost the U S cloud computing industry up to $180 billion as a result it. of foreign uh, firms bolting American providers. Isn't this, isn't this one of those things that people you know say has like a chilling effect? I mean, the government takes some kind of action like this and it scares everyone. It, it stops. I mean, this is another example of like government screwing up commerce. It, it does, but that's such a huge number. And even the article kind of questioned the number. Um, he, he went on to say that the 180, 180 billion figure, which appears to be plucked from the air was cited as a worst case scenario. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how you quantify something like that. Yeah. Obviously it's probably a, it's probably a huge effect, but I mean, I don't, I don't see how you can pull a number out. Right. But, but I mean, depending on the type of industry you're in, I mean, if you're a pharmaceutical company, you definitely have, have quite a bit of concern over who has access to your data. I mean, especially since you have so much R and D tied into whatever, you know, product you're developing. And I would think one of the big concerns too would be, I mean, it's one thing if like you lose customer data to the NSA or somehow, you know, your customer discovers that the the data was compromised by the NSA. But I think the bigger concern is for a company for their own corporate um, proprietary information for that to be compromised and potentially leaked to competitors. That's, 
biggest concern for a lot of companies. But see, I just don't think the NSA is, that's not the kind of stuff that, I mean, yes, they are, they're have completely overreached uh, boundaries in probably unconstitutional ways. But I think most companies don't think that's going to result in their, you know, in corporate espionage. I don't, I don't think there's been any evidence that the NSA is, you know, working with companies to the benefit of other companies or anything like that. And that, I, I that think would that's be a what, huge problem, even bigger than what we're already seeing. Yeah. It, I think that's kind of what's currently muddying the waters of the whole NSA issue or whatever you want to call it is that yes, they're collecting all this data, but they're not really looking at it. They're not really reading it. And it's so much data. They really couldn't. I mean, maybe if you had a stalker who, who worked there and was, you know, querying all their data about you. Yeah, that probably does happen. And it's probably so isolated that it's like a small percentage. Chances are they're not really sitting there looking and reading everything and trying to make money off of it or do something evil yeah. with it. Yeah. But which is why I think the, the side vast is, majority of companies in, don't really care. It's like they don't they don't think that's what's happening and it's because that's probably not happening. So they don't really care. It's not a big yeah. deal. I mean, the, the logical side of me definitely sees that, you know, they're not really doing anything with the data. It's 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 there. It's meant to mine in case there's an, an event that they can kind of collect some information, find out what happened. But then there's the other side of me that says it's still private information. Why do they have it? Why do they have to store it? All that kind of stuff that, you know, that kind of muddies the water a bit. It's, it's not so black and white as yes or no. Well, it's definitely an innovation and, and probably, like I said, unconstitutional, but does that mean that it's going to affect you, your business right now? Are you financially right now? You know, probably not. Right. That's, and I think that's what most people are kind of resting on is that, well, yeah, it's not good. Um, and hopefully some kind of civil libertarian group will put some pressure on, but you know, it doesn't really affect me. So I don't care. Anyway, what else is going on? Um, slow week. How was your Christmas, man? Was it good? Did you have a good time? Yeah, it was good. Pretty standard. Um, Santa came. My four-year-old cried as soon as he came down and saw the presents Santa brought him. (laughs) Because he was so excited. It was tears of joy. I don't think that's what it was. But yeah, he's just emotional. He, He cried like four or five times by, you know, by noon. Mainly like, you know, he just, he gets so excited and has so much fun. But then as soon as a toy is like, he can't get it to work the way he thinks it should, he'll get frustrated really easily and just start crying. Yeah. That's my son right now too. Just a, it's a phase. It is. They go through these phases, but it was good. Yeah. We, uh, saw some family and I made eggnog, which was yummy. That's kind of a oh, tradition. Eggnog is gross. I can't stand it. Yeah. You're weird. Do you spike it? <laughs> course <laughs> not, you, said not like, you said that like i offended you of you course some, i did you have to have something to kill the salmonella from the raw eggs right <laughs> you gotta have something to kill the taste of eggnog <laughs> whatever actually it's a taste and texture thing for me it's just you you and your weird tastes i don't like eggnog you don't like onions i'll eat onions if they're cooked i don't like raw pungent onions mm. i can just bite into a red onion Oh, like an apple. Oh, you're one of those people that can just sit there and eat onions <laughs> raw. Yes, yes. Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> it's weird though. Like no one wants to be around me when I eat. I don't understand why. <laughs> I no one can wants imagine. to talk to me. Yeah. It's almost like I had bad breath or something. I don't, you know, who knows? <laughs> I don't think it's your breath. I think it comes out of your pores at that point. 
Um, well, I, I feel obligated to talk about my drink, which we always do anyway, because my wife made it for me. I've never had this before. It's called a South of Manhattan. I guess it's yeah. similar to a Manhattan, right? Um, I'm trying to think of what's different. I've just looked at the recipe. So it's got bourbon and amaretto and maple uh-huh. syrup and blood orange. Uh, that's so hilarious. Is that what you're drinking? No, I thought about making a Manhattan today, but I didn't. Um, but what I did end up making is a, well, there's actually two ways to make it. And I'll tell you the difference is a bourbon amaretto sour. And the reason I say there's two ways, because you can have an amaretto bourbon sour. And the main difference is whichever has the higher percentage of alcohol in the drink. Oh, so that's like on the Crayola crayons. Like what's the difference between blue, green and green, blue. Right. You remember that? <laughs> I still, you know, I'm 36 years old. And I still can't remember which is which. <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing. I did a, a bourbon amaretto sour. It's actually pretty hmm. good. Really tasty. I liked it. Awesome. Yeah. So what makes the sour? Is it got like lime or lemon? Yeah, it's got lemon. So it's freshly okay. squeezed lemon. And like I said before, it's basically lemonade. You get simple syrup and lemons, put them together. That turns into lemonade and just pour your bourbon on top of that. I made something the other day. It was kind of like that, but simpler. Uh, it was, it was um, like, I guess it was called a bourbon fizz. And I, I know there are various recipes, but this one was basically just, I think it was mainly just um, bourbon and amaretto. So where'd the fizz come in? Oh, it also had a soda. Ah. And I think it called for another ingredient that I didn't have. Um, like you're supposed to coat the glass with maybe like Frangelico or something. I can't remember, but that's similar to Amaretto. <clears throat> but yeah, um, I normally don't ever drink Amaretto or even keep it, but um, I had bought a bottle of like, what's it called? Desaro- Des- uh, what's that? Desarono. Yeah. Okay. Desarono. Desarono. <laughs> Is that Italian or Spanish? I have or no what? idea. I would say Italian. I don't know. If it's Spanish, it'd be, it'd be like disarono, and if it's Italian, it'd be like disarono, right? <laughs> I've never heard it pronounced except for the commercials, and they they just say disarono on the rocks. Yeah, but anyway, so I'm, that stuff is good. I mean, the amaretto I've, I've had in the past has just been like the cheap stuff, and it's just so gooey. And this stuff is sweet, but I mean, there's the fake, the fake fruit, fake nut, you know, just overly sweet and syrupy. Um, this disarono stuff is good. I actually didn't get the DiSerrano. For some reason, I just decided not to get it. Um, I got a different brand, but at the store I went to, the store I usually go to, they actually only carry like three brands. And that's it. Well, how many brands do you need? I don't know. A variety? A choice? Yeah. I mean, so, enough so I can say, what's the best one out of this shelf of 10 of them? Right. I know there's a couple of others, at least one other that's considered like uh you know, a good brand. Um, do you perhaps have the Lazzaroni? No. In fact, let me grab it. I'll, sh- I'll tell you what it is. Probably have one of the cheap ones. If I don't drop it, it's Trader Vicks. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the, like the store brand, right? I don't know what, no, that's not a store brand. It's not. That's not what the store is called. The original Trader Vicks. It's- uh, since 1934, Amaretto Liqueur. The Trader Vic, so that's, hang on, that's like a restaurant. That's, isn't that where, like, uh, there was some drink that was invented there. Um, hang on, it's a rest, restaurant chain headquartered in Emeryville, California. Uh, okay, that's where they supposedly invented the Mai Tai. 
Ah. So I guess they just have brands of stuff. I guess. Well, this is their brand of amaretto then. Gotcha. <laughs> and the re- so there's actually a reason I didn't get the DiSerono is because the only bottle they had was this ginormous, like, gallon of it. And <laughs> I was really only getting it for my wife because she wanted me to make her an amaretto sour. And um, I found after drinking it that I kind of liked it with the bourbon and found out that's a natural drink. So I buy all my alcohol in the gallon jugs. <laughs> I do my I do buy my Jack Daniels by the gallon. But I, I pour it into a decanter buy by the and then, gallon, whatever is the one point five, right? The ha- a handle, right? The Jack, the Jack Daniels. You really buy a gallon of it. I don't know what it is. It's a huge bottle. It's like gigantic and I think I can get two or three servings into my decanter before it's done. It's huge. I wonder if that's like a three liter. It might be. I don't know. Wow. It's crazy. But that's kind of like my casual drink it with some, with some Coke drink at the end of the day, had a long day, but then I'll put a small amount in my decanter and I'll hide the big bottle. Cause otherwise I look like a freaking alky. Yeah. You have the ATF banging down your door for illegal quantities of alcoholic beverage or more so my father-in-law doesn't drink. So. I don't want him saying that. He might judge me. No. One of those. <laughs> I I gave up on that a long time ago. I don't want to be judged in my house. I'm like, you know, yes, I drink. And if that's a problem, then, well, it's not my problem. Uh, all in good fun socially. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And I think we have a show. All right, man. Well, happy new year to you. Happy new year. And good day, sir. Good day, sir.